episode is Daniel Epler, he of the Cobwebs Gothic Cinema Podcast. And since he was good enough to uh, be on my show and, uh, you know, contribute, I think that uh, you owe him a listen, you know, give him a day in court. I know I sure am. Uh, Daniel heard me on the Terror Table podcast. He got in touch and said he wanted to do the podcast. And here we are. We made it happen. Uh, so others out there, follow Daniel's lead. You know, if you're interested in the podcast, let me know. If you're a person who Skypes or FaceTimes, we can make this happen. This episode is an example of that. Send me a message at rankingreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankingreview.ca. I am, of course, your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and I hope everybody goes into this podcast expecting spoilers and coarse language, because this podcast has spoilers and coarse language. I hope you enjoy this episode of Rank and Review, and happy 2020, everybody. This is the first podcast of 2020. Thank you for listening to Rank and Review. Please spread the word. Now let's get busy. We live in a wonderful age of technology, so I can be talking to to Daniel Epler from Missouri and uh, Hugh of the podcast, sorry, Gothic Cobwebs? Uh, it's just called Cobwebs and then colon a Gothic Cinema Podcast, ah, but I often just refer to it as Cobwebs. Cobwebs. And so you do more classic horror movies. Yeah, that's the focus. It's not the only thing I do. Uh, the pitch for it is... Uh, classic gothic cinema and the modern cinema that influenced it so if okay. i can justify that like stuff like universal monsters and hammer like has influenced this newer movie then i talk about it okay i see that's what basic you're pitch so you're looking for the origins of where modern horror is by by doing your due diligence and looking into the past yeah pretty much yeah well we're not going to do that at all today on my show <laughs> no we're not <laughs> i think 1986 is as far back as we're going yeah well but to some people that's an age but um that is yeah so you you bumped into me through listening to the Terror Table podcast. So we're gonna mm-hmm. we're, we're we're cross pollinating podcasts here. Um, yep. So I think that's really cool. I really like it finding new <laughs> new listeners and and uh, definitely new guests. Mm-hmm. And we decided on this get, this list, wink wink, which is like 
horror-themed genre movies, for the most part, are movies that are trying to be clever, that are kind of winking at its audience, which, you know, they're in on the joke in some level. How do you feel about that genre of movies? Do you prefer your horror to just not have any kind of wink to it at all? Or do you like your, 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 your comedy and horror together? It's, you know, it's weird to me that I picked this list because I'm not a big fan of the wink wink, actually. Um, I think probably the most famous of the uh, the quote-unquote wink-wink movies that, we're t- that we would talk about is Scream. For sure. And I really like Scream. I just don't really like the meta parts as much. Like when Jamie Kennedy starts going into all the rules of horror, I'm not so much into that, but I like it when it's just a straight horror movie. So, so this is a bit of an interesting list for me to go through because it's not my particular genre. But I also think... I think horror comedy is pretty loose in terms of this list. Like, I would probably say there are three horror comedies on here, and the other ones I'm not sure I would quite include in that list, okay. in that genre. Um, well, again, I, I, I'm sort of thinking of more of the winking. They're not always overtly going for laughs, but I think they're all sort of winking at you. <laughs> and yeah. Some are certainly more subtle than others. I mean, we have Nazis coming from the moon in one of these movies, so... They don't speak in subtlety in that movie at all, nor would we expect them to. Um, but um, there's a lot of movies that are trying to sort of, I don't know, comment on or pick apart the horror genre, but still love them. And I think that's the line for me. I don't particularly enjoy being lectured by a movie. I don't like a movie that's saying, shame on you for liking this movie. It just seems disingenuous mm-hmm. to me. I don't, I don't appreciate it. <laughs> Yes. But I have been watching these movies since I was a kid, and I would be a fool to not acknowledge that they have these cliches to them. And so what these movies do are acknowledge that they have these cliches, embrace them, and sort of... We have this sort of relationship with the movies. We're understanding that we're going to let these things slide. Uh, we give these movies a bigger pass than we give most movies. And they have had their like real reign in popularity. Like you said, in the 90s, this sort of satirical bend almost took over horror movies. In fact, one of the movies we're talking about, uh, this list, Final Girls, really feels like it should have been made in the 90s. <laughs> like, yes, that's a very good point. Like, it, it just Its biggest problem is it arrived to the party way too late. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, I like it. It's it's a tricky thing to get right because you can overspill either side. You can have too much horror and then the, the, the humor seems somehow distasteful by contrast. Or you can have too much comedy and then it's hard to take the horror seriously. It takes the bite right out of the picture. That's but true. It's a tricky I, balance. Yeah, but what I do like is the conversation that these movies, most of them are having with the audience. We know that you've seen lots of movies. You know that this is another one of those movies and you're going to let us play. So... That's what, where I come in on it. Um, is there a specific take you have on these? You know, I was a little worried going into this podcast because I don't feel like, for most of the movies, I have a really strong take. Like, I think, by and large, this is a decent collection of movies. And I don't have, like, huge complaints with particularly any of them. And, um, and with a few exceptions, I'm not sure I have a ton of praise to give them either, but... But I think it is a, a pretty good collection of movies, and um, maybe maybe with one exception, they're definitely recommendable. For well, sure. it'll be interesting because I'm going to say that two of them I, I have problems, pretty substantial problems with. Not that they're all perfect movies, but I would say four out of the six of the movies I would comfortably recommend that I would feel good about recommending. So I'm probably the same. Honestly. <laughs> 
Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say, Daniel, before we start this podcast and I list off the six movies we'll be ranking and reviewing? Oh, just that I'm happy to be here. I love rank and review. It's a really fun show to listen to, so excited to take part in it. See, take a lesson from this, listeners. He heard the show. He contacted me. He's on the show. This is this 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 is how it works. And yeah, I it was one that... of your it was one of your episodes where you just said like, man, I really want some more guests for the show. I, I it's, <laughs> if somebody wants to contact me or blah blah blah, and I was like, well, damn, that's an invitation. I'll, yeah. I'll just do that. Well, it saves me hassling my friends all of the time, you know? They're like, yes, 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 I'll get to it. Here's your stack of six movies. <laughs> it's always nice to have a willing participant. And I figure if you've got your own podcast, like, we're already kind of bros here. I've <laughs> so, yeah, no, I completely understand what you're saying, for sure. Uh, the six movies, the wink-wink comedies that we're going to be talking about this episode, we have the controversial 2016 Lady Ghostbusters. <laughs> We Ghostbusters have, colon answer the call. I think they named it after the Blu-ray release or something like that. Well, mine just says Ghostbusters, but whatever. I, <laughs> everybody knows what we're talking about. Uh, we have a really strange movie called Iron Sky, as I mentioned, about Nazis coming back from the dark side of the moon. <laughs> back from the moon. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's a tale as old as time, really. <laughs> we have an utterly bizarre Stephen King original screenplay called Sleepwalkers about incestuous werecats. <laughs> very incestuous, <laughs> very overtly. It's not subtext. We'll get into that. Uh, we're going to talk about Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives, one of the more overtly comic entries in the Friday the 13th franchise i don't know if you heard my podcast on the whole series it ranked quite high for me in the series so you kind of come in knowing that i'm a fanboy of at least one of these movies yes okay jason Voorhees, the man behind the mask does make an appearance in this list then we have behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon which is a strange not quite found footage not quite pseudo documentary not quite straight thriller but all of those things kind of at once in sort of a weird way but uh trying to say something about the genre it's just one of those ones is you gotta there's a premise you gotta climb over to get to the meat of the movie and we're gonna finish it off with yet another meta horror comedy called the final girls where a uh, young woman enters the movie of her lost mother and uh, gets to live some sci-fi slasher tropes while reconnecting with her lost love that's the movie we're going to talk about today thanks so much for being here daniel thank you for having me we have a gift we see what no one else is willing to see we do things others can't do ghostbusters if there's a paranormal problem we're the ones to answer the call hello the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. What do we think of these Ghostbusters? Are they to be taken seriously? You take that aisle, I'll take the far one. Okay, you sweaty freaks. I'm about to save you from this ghost. <laughs> okay, so I don't know if it was a race thing or a lady thing, but I'm mad as hell. There's a bigger picture at hand here. Someone is creating a device that amplifies paranormal activity. We're going to need a bigger boat. Hey, guys, check it out. Kevin, come inside. I was born to be a Ghostbuster, all right? Oh, man, that's so not good. Something big is going to happen. The word we're looking for is apocalypse. You want a piece of this? 
government's trying to claim the event isn't supernatural. We don't want a panic. We don't want mass hysteria. Get out of the city! Get out of the city! I will kick the unliving crap out of you! And you! Especially you! Hey! Don't move! You gotta, uh... No, I'm tired. No, no, Listen. I'm just gonna go ahead and take off. How about that? I, I don't really think that's a good idea. No. Going to take off. Don't piss off the ghosts. Really? Going into these, this controversial Ghostbusters movie, I mean, I feel like whether you want to or not, everybody brings a little bit of baggage to this movie. Whether or not Ghostbusters was a sacred property to you to begin with, how you feel about the whole she-make <laughs> approach to movies, is it just a remake by flopping the gen flipping the gender around, is, is that reason enough to do it is it does it make enough sense and the you know very real backlash that seemed to happen when the trailer dropped there was a lot of hostility a lot of like it seemed like a lot of angry young men took this really personally there was a similar thing that happened around the fury road with mad max a lot of a lot oh of, i actually don't remember seeing that around fury road a lot of but people, i still remember it about ghostbusters yeah a lot of people thought that furiosa kind of stole the film from mad max right and I think a case can be made that her character is a stronger presence in that film, but it still feels like of the world of Mad Max to me. Anyway, <clears throat> I frankly tried to detach myself from it because I don't really care. Um, as far as I'm concerned, and this might be controversial, this franchise had kind of already shot the bed with Ghostbusters 2 for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I came in completely willing to just judge this as a movie of its own right. And as far as I'm concerned, the biggest missteps it takes is all of the fan pandering that goes on through the movie. I actually okay. think there's a lot of funny enough scenes and a lot of the character work is, you know, they, 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 they t hired talented actresses and funny people and there are some funny scenes. But it's one of those movies that, like, it has, like, a good scene followed by a kind of mess scene. And then, hey, a cameo by a former Ghostbuster. And there's a good scene and here's a mess scene and this scene's going to push plot. And... It's neither as awful as a lot of the people seem to want to make the world believe, nor as good as it needed to be to sort of hold the mantle of Ghostbusters. In the end of the day, I think that a little bit too much was made of it. I think that it was charming enough. It was fine enough. In its own way, I think it's a better, more held-together movie than Ghostbusters 2, but it doesn't lick the boots of the original. But... As a kid who was like nine years old, when the first time he saw the original Ghostbusters, I don't know if a movie would. It's one of those movies that just ignited my imagination so completely that uh, unless you can get me in a time machine, put me back in my nine-year-old brain, you're just never gonna, you're never gonna do it for me. <laughs> so, right. It ends up being okay. Like I'm not mad at the movie. I don't hate the movie, but I just can't get passionate about defending it either. So, kind of a mixed review to start. But I'm I'm happy to hear a second opinion. Wow, I I can't tell you how relieved I am because we're pretty much on the same page. Like I I had no idea because a lot of people absolutely hate this film. Now I actually saw this one in theaters back in 2016. And I really wanted to love it because I was so upset by the backlash that I saw as I really saw it as a lot of pretty overt sexism 
And I found that kind of upsetting and I really did not want to be one of those people. So I wanted it to be good in order to show all those people like, hey, look, you all, all freaked out about the trailer, but it's actually a really good movie. And back in 2016, I wasn't crazy about it. I uh, my, my basic take was I thought the first half was actually pretty good when it's just like these actors and these characters getting to know each other and forming the group and everything. And I still think that's the strongest part of the movie. And then I thought the second half was pretty terrible. Right. Uh, rewatching it this time, though, I think the second half is better than I originally gave it credit for. So I'm actually I actually kind of like this movie. And um, it's mainly because of the actors. I think the four core Ghostbusters, I believe their character relationships. I think most of the comedy mostly works. Um, I do think uh, Chris Hemsworth runs away with the movie as their receptionist. He is absolutely hilarious. And I think this was the this was the moment when Marvel figured out, oh, Chris Evans is actually Chris Evans. Look at that. All the Hollywood Chris's. Chris Hemsworth is actually funny. Maybe we should let him do that in Thor Ragnarok. And I'm so happy about that. Um, I, I agree with you that I think it is actually better than uh, Ghostbusters 2. No, it doesn't hold a candle to the original. And, and you know, I think I, I, I'm 26, so I come from the generation that is very used to remakes, especially remakes of 80s movies. Right. So I really don't care when they do remakes. A lot, most of the time, I just don't care for the movies. But I think this might be one of the better ones. Um, yeah, the actors are charming. I think a lot of the jokes are pretty funny. Uh, for me, the biggest problem of the movie is the cameos from the original cast. I and think service. they're pretty terrible. The fir- Bill Murray has two cameo scenes. His first one where he's just on TV, that's fine. Yeah. They should have just left it at that. But then they brought him back in to like mock him as a terrible person and then kill him off. And I just I had trouble thinking of a possibly more disrespectful cameo for Bill Murray to have in a Ghostbusters remake. Well, not to, but that's, that's not, my basic take. Not that I'm disagreeing with you, but Bill Murray's been a real dick about Ghostbusters. Like, let's this be real. Like, uh, he had a falling out with Harold Ramis over Groundhog's Day, and he knew that Harold Ramis wanted to make more Ghostbusters and to sort of stick it to him, he just wouldn't do more Ghostbusters. I think if Harold Ramis was still alive, he wouldn't have been in this Ghostbusters. I mean, whether or not it's the truth, I haven't talked to the guy. What it looks like is once Harold Ramis was out of the picture, all of a sudden Bill Murray was okay with doing Ghostbusters movies again. Mm. I'm not saying that's how it is. That's how it looks. I mean, they did publicly not get along with each other for a lot of years. They did have a creating fall, creative falling out, which is unfortunate. I mean, Stripes and Ghostbusters and all those classic 80s comedies. You know, you'd like Yeah, they did amazing work together. Right? Groundhog's Day, I think, is kind of a classic movie in its own right, but yeah. not, not dark enough for Bill. So maybe this cameo was an indictment of Bill Murray. Maybe the reason it was so shitty and to that character and dismissive of him is because that's how he treated the franchise. But it's not what I the never fans, thought about that. That's a good point. It's not what the fans wanted, though. Same thing with the Dan Aykroyd and and Ernie Hudson and the, you know Annie Potts. It's just like it's just reminding you of the other better movie that you're not watching. Even worse than that is the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and Slimer. I think that, like, Slimer becomes almost a de facto hero of the movie, and there's just... There's no reason for their presence except for fan service. They don't serve the story. It's just a completely absurd element. What I defend the most is the cast, the, the girls. I particularly like uh, Kate McKinnon and uh, what's the other uh, Leslie Jones from the two Saturday Night Live alumni I particularly think they're strong Kristen Wiig is unfortunately kind of delegated to the straight man role a lot of the time 
Although she does good stuff with it. She has that creepy story about the old lady next door, which I thought was actually a nice little genuine kind of spooky beat that they tried to plug into the movie. But yeah. McKinnon and Leslie Jones have energy, and you can feel like they're seem, they seem excited to be there. Uh, as far as uh, Thor and the, the secretary role, I agree with you that he's really funny. But it's kind of interesting because for all the things that they could comment on in this sort of switched gender world, that's one thing that Ghostbusters really isn't that guilty of is sexism, right? So it's not really a comment on the first movie and it's not really like... <laughs> it, like they, they are flummoxed by him. He's so pretty that they just have to accept him no matter how incompetent he is. I don't know if it's a comment on him or a comment on them. It is funny and that's what saves it. But it's... <laughs> It's it's not as clear cut as maybe it, it would first seem. the The fact that you're laughing so much sort of lets you get past it. But um, I don't know if they're trying to say anything with it at all. But like, you could say, you know, in the original Ghostbusters, yeah, there's some some tactless humor with Sigourney Weaver, and the fact that the Ghostbusters are chain smoking all the time is maybe something that could be addressed. But I don't know if you could accuse them, other than maybe Bankman being a little aggressive with Sigourney Weaver's character, of being sexist. But these girls no, kind of No, I didn't get the sense with the Chris Hemsworth character they were trying to say anything. I thought it was just a joke for a comedy. And Kristen Wiig is really the only one that is particularly taken with yeah. his attractiveness. Everyone else, like Melissa McCarthy, really just, she just wants a receptionist and she's just trying to be nice to him. But um, the, the joke is really regulated just at Kristen Wiig and... I, I think he's just a joke, and a particularly good one for a comedy. Yeah. And again, you're not going to replace Annie Potts, so don't try. Right? Very true. <laughs> yeah. Um, the special effects generally work. I think that the villain's kind of weak, but they had so much of a world to set up here that somebody was going to be given sort of the short end of the stick. And if it had to be somebody, it might as well be our big bad. He basically turns on a machine that makes a bunch of ghosts happen. <laughs> well, this is how, you know, the most successful action movies of today, Marvel movies, are generally, where it's like, we have the villain, nobody really cares about him, it's about the ensemble of heroes. So that's that's just kind of how movies have been going lately, yeah. unfortunately. There is a fine line. Like, I'm not saying don't have any fan service, but do it tactfully. Don't stop the movie for fan service. Have us walk past the fan service. It would have been one thing if they went past graffiti that looked like uh, the I'm not afraid of no ghosts, like, logo. But they had this whole business of the kid drawing it out, and we had to wait for the punchline, <laughs> like a bunch of children, you know? Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's something just ham-fisted about particularly that level of it and it, it sort of made the movie feel a little insecure of itself it should have just if the whole movie had been as confident as Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones I think that it might have worked all in all more effectively um, surprisingly I think that um, Melissa McCarthy who's usually dependable for being like getting big laughs kind of gets outshined by the rest of the cast in this particular case <laughs> I mean, oh, I would agree. Yeah, she. I, I would say maybe even more than Kristen Wiig, she's the straight man. I mean, the movie becomes about these women sort of repairing their friendship, and as a result, the fact that they conclusively prove to the world that there's ghosts kind of just gets missed, you know? <laughs> um, but I'm not going to say I didn't like that. I like that they, you know, they fixed their friendship and they had this big apocalyptic showdown. And I mean, it worked well enough. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, but 
I don't know if you. I think that when you when you get a brand as important as Ghostbusters, I mean, either a just don't touch it. That's probably the smartest approach. But if you do, you know, I want to really feel that you tried. You did everything you could to to live up to owning that name, and. I understand that people get their nose real out of joint about it, but like I said, in a world where Ghostbusters 2 exists, <laughs> this is fine. Do I have high, do I have high hopes for the next Ghostbusters? I'd be lying if I said that I did. But I'll watch the shit out of it. So <laughs> Yeah, and Ghostbusters isn't a property that's particularly important to me. Like I think the first movie is a fantastic special effects comedy, which is very rare because a big special effects high budget comedy that's actually good. That is kind of a rare thing, but the first one is maybe the best one ever made. But um, but as far as just a remake, I think it's pretty solid. I will say um, the one element of this movie that's wink-wink that I think does work really well is it's kind of meta about the world hating on this particular group of Ghostbusters. Because not only do so many audiences on the YouTube trailer for this actual movie hate on them, but a video gets posted of them in the movie fighting ghosts, and they're reading off all these comments that are so vicious towards them. And uh, the government, the city government acknowledges that they're doing a good thing, they're doing great work, but they can't acknowledge the existence of ghosts, so they yeah. just trash talk them on TV and then apologize to them afterwards. Nice so that to your element face. of that I thought really worked. Yeah. yeah, we'll be nice to your face, but we'll smear you publicly. And that's yeah. how these cowardly film trolls would likely be if they, you know, they'd be typing away about how much they hate Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, but if they ever melt them, watch them just melt like ice cream. That's <laughs> um, so true. I don't think it deserved the hate it got. I mean, who knows? Maybe if they'd managed to get the sequel that they'd planned, they could have actually built on this and turned it into something even better. But uh, yeah, everybody needs to relax. It's fine. It's not exceptional. It's another Ghostbusters movie. Like, let's move Agreed. on. Let's move on. Are you, is that good enough? That, that is good enough. Last quick thing I'll say. Yeah. Benny, as the Chinese food delivery boy, also one of the MVPs of this movie. <laughs> I think he is so funny. <laughs> They're good with the running gags in this. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Nazis from the moon. <laughs> That's too much. One word from me, and the invasion from the moon begins. Invasion? Y'all must be tripping. Now, my question is, what do y'all plan to do about it? Because we just happen to have a little something up our own sleeve. <laughs> All presidents who start a war in their first term get re-elected. Und wegen alle diese Untermenschen von der Erdkarte. Shit, this just keeps getting better and better. We are the promise delivered to all mankind. We raise our hands to one nation. The world is sick, but we are the doctors. So Iron Sky is from 2012. It is a Finnish-German-Australian science fiction satire. The directors are Timu Virosola, and it's written by Johanna Sinsolo and Mikhail Kinsolko. I, I don't know how to sell these, say these last names, so I apologize. 
But the reason I'm going out of my way to point this out is because I think part of the uncanny valley experience of Iron Sky is that it's doing a lot of, or purporting to do a lot of satire of actually modern America. Even though it's about classic evil sort of Indiana Jones villains, Nazis attacking Earth from the moon. It's much more about sort of the state of affairs of, you know, Americans' politics and, and how they're going to respond militarily to such an absurd catastrophe taking place. Um, you know, some unsubtle digs at Sarah Palin, some unsubtle, you know, commentary going on. But it's none of it insider baseball because everybody involved in this movie lives on the other side of the planet. So they don't <laughs> they don't have a real personal take on it. And in a weird way, it's enough for them just to bring the setup. It's just like the concept is enough to make them smile, and that's what they do. Basically, this is a bunch of guys who are really good with their special effects and making these sort of spacescapes, and they wanted to build a movie around it, and they probably had a couple bottles of wine and thought, yeah, we could do this thing about Nazis from the moon, and, you know, it snowballed, and all of a sudden, a few years later, they're, they're in production on this thing, and this is actually happening, and this sort of, this, this dare of a movie, this sort of drunken, let, we could make it look better than it has any business looking sort of thing, comes to full execution. And I want to say it deserves the cult crowd that goes around it because there's three of these movies now. The third one, I think, is coming out eminently. Wow. But I am not on board. Like, I kind <laughs> of stared, like, just mystified at, like, there's not really any punchline. Like I said, it's just like the premise is enough. All of the scenes have the premise. How absurd. The Nazis encounter a black astronaut. What are they going to make of him? That that's the joke. That's the beginning, middle, and end of the joke. They, they there is no answer to that question. Uh, how is the world going to react to the, these Nazis coming from the moon and this culture clash? They they get a hold of some of our modern technologies, a phone or a laptop, and that's going to like redouble their technology just by plugging into that somehow. And uh, the weirdly gentle way they handle the Nazis, and that the Nazis don't really realize that they're evil. They've been so inbred on the moon that. They have a real warped perspective of what the Nazi party was. <laughs> so maybe they could be saying something about stuff. Or maybe it could just be so over-the-top, like, crazy, offensively funny, like a world police, Team America world police type of approach. But amazingly, none of those things happen. No approach is taken. It's almost played flat and straight. Like, <laughs> it's a comedy without, without jokes. Just premises for jokes. It's like it's almost like they expect you to fill in the blanks. It's a choose-your-own-adventure comedy where you're like, how could we make this scene funny? Here are the players, and here's the situation. Now, what's something funny for someone to say? I'd like to blame it all on the script, but I think the cast is almost uniformly flat as well. It's like, I don't know. I, it just didn't work for me. But I, I've looked around. I've sniffed around. Like I said, there's three of these movies now. I, I seem to be in the minority. Have I missed something? Where have I gone wrong with Iron Sky? Are you in the minority, or is this a movie where people drink a lot or smoke a lot and sort of laugh at how, quote-unquote, so bad it's good it is, and that's where the fan base is coming from? Because I didn't even know there really was a cult following around this. But, like, the Sharknados of the world, or that ilk of movie, if that's what you're talking about, sort mm -hmm. of gets off on their just... They're, they're trying too hard in a way, like for their budgets. But yeah. there are jokes, there are punchlines. 
Okay. There's like That's a good I, point. Say, I go back to the uncanny valley thing. It's like it almost doesn't play like a comedy. It's just sort of like plays like isn't this strange? Isn't it? Wouldn't it be weird if? It's like people want us to smile, but they never quite tip us over to laughing, and it's almost like the absurdity of the movie was going to be enough to get us through it. Yeah, I think you said it well when you said it's um, it's there are no jokes. It's just premises because I'm not a, watching it. I wasn't really sure what the genre is. I think ultimately it's just a science fiction movie, and they thought because the premise is so weird that that is enough to carry it through. But ultimately, it's it's not. I really did not care for this movie. It's a movie where it's it's impossible to care about anything that's going on the whole time because. You're absolutely right about the actors being flat. Christopher Kirby as the black astronaut, James Washington, yeah. all he is is the lamest black guy stereotype that they could possibly do. Like, there's no character there. It does feel like the people who wrote it don't know anything about African Americans in America or anything right. like that. And the fact that they're not Americans making it is fascinating. Um, it came out in 2012, which which was incredible because it seems it's 2008 political commentary. Like they're talking about the Bush era and they're talking about Sarah Palin. So it's weirdly too late. Um, it surprisingly looks so much better than it should. I feel like it should look like this cheap, like uh, asylum level garbage. And it doesn't. I'm not going to say it's a good looking movie, but it looks fairly flat and OK, almost like they're walking around in video game environments um you got julia diet so i'm looking up her name on imdb right now as renette who is the the nazi with a heart of gold i guess nazi you could school say teacher. she's got something going on <laughs> you know exactly where that character is going from the start because she's very attractive and she has a sort of romantic moment with our hero the black astronaut in the beginning so you know she's going to end up turning against the zombies and be with him in the end, and of course that's exactly where it goes. Also, you got to love in the beginning that they they encounter some kind of large gust of wind and it blows her clothing off, yeah. which is maybe the most overt comedy in the whole movie, <laughs> or just it's just there for the the guy smoking too much watching this movie, hoping to get a little something. Yeah. Um, but I just I just can't muster any sort of passion for this movie either way. It's just a flat line. But again, you know? I wish the movie had taken a point on it. He opens the door, she asks what the exit is, and so she points to it. And it's, of course, the exit to, like, the outside, to, like, the, the, the moon's atmosphere. So, <laughs> like, that could be funny. That's, like, an absurd Daffy Duck moment for him to do. And, yes, he grabs hold of her, and for some reason this suction pulls a good portion of her clothes off. But again, it's it's just the premise of that is that it's not like, yeah, that's what we would do in that situation if you were a goofy comedy. But does the movie think that's really funny? Same thing. They do this absolutely absurd and maybe want to be offensive thing where, where they they give this black astronaut white face to sort of, quote, normalize him. Right. To make him fit in with the rest of them. Right. And, like, again, if they were going really hard and over the top in, like, a South Park or Team America kind of way, maybe they would do something with it. But, again, it's just the premise. Ha, huh, now he's in whiteface. Isn't that outrageous? He still doesn't really look white at all. No, he looks, he looks mostly absurd. the same except with blonde hair. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absurd, but not funny. No. It, like... I, I, I wish I could say it was so bad it was good, but it... it, 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 it confused me it confused and frustrated me dan <laughs> have you this is slightly well no it's it is on topic but have you seen wolf cop 
Oh yeah, that was made like two hours from my house. I oh, know some people. Made. That's right. It is a Canadian movie. That's right. Yeah. I think like Wolf Cop is just the better version of this movie, in that like you know if you want to get a little bit of titillation in an exploitation movie like this, then like fine. that's fine. Rather than the clothes blow off, Wolf Cop has this hilarious sex scene with this incredibly over the top '80s love ballad, and and it's absolutely hilarious. And like you know. That's the way to go. Yeah. Wolf Cop's a much better example of this kind of thing. But Wolf Cop knows what it is. That's the thing with Iron Sky. Like I said, these are a bunch of special effects guys, so they know how to create these spacescapes, but they don't know how to write a script, and they clearly just ask their friends to be in the movie. And it, mm. it's become this cult absurd thing, Like, but it is closer to like the, the, the room, like the accidental success than anything else. It's, it. It's not better than it has any business being is the thing. Like it looks better than it should considering how low budget it is, but it's just Yeah. It's just not present. I mean no. <laughs> We're gonna talk about another movie on this list that's not a good movie, but in my ways I think it's it's better because it's more memorably bad. It's more memorably off the charts. It's just more bonkers. This movie almost needs to be more bonkers, and considering it's about Nazis from space. <laughs> Like, how did they miss the crazy? <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. You set a high bar of crazy with that premise, and to not meet it, that's a problem. Yeah. So, I don't know. I don't have much more to say about Iron Sky. It's a strangely bland experience for me. Yep. I, oh, man, walking into this podcast, I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to say about Iron Sky? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we've said it, man. <laughs> Good All right, cool. Charles Brady is new in town. You could actually talk to him? Yeah, he's nice. Real nice. The girls all like him. The teachers all respect him. Your teachers in Ohio must have been sorry to lose such a creative young man. The parents all trust him. He's utterly charming. But nobody really knows him. Like his mother. I cannot be in love with this girl, Charles. You don't know me, Tanya. But I want to. Behind their smile is a secret. Hi. Come in, Tanya. I have something for you. I don't know who you are, but I know you're not who you say you are. Behind the secret is a hunger. Does it have to be her? <laughs> and behind it all is the imagination of Stephen King. <laughs> So in the year 1992, a original screenplay by Stephen King was produced by uh, someone who would become a very regular collaborator with him, Mick Garris. He, he did the TV version of The Stand, he did uh, the TV version of The Shining, he did a bunch of those made-for-TV King movies. He also did a really great 80s guilty pleasure of mine called Critters 2. 
The new badge. Oh, no, that's Gremlins 2. The main course, I think, is uh, Critters 2 the main course, or the second course? Doesn't matter. That sounds right, yeah. <laughs> um, he, he does sort of cheapo, usually not that great horror, mid- middling horror movies. Here's the thing about Sleepwalkers as a script, because I'm speaking as a fan of Stephen King. Either this was the last thing he wrote before he quit drugs, or it was the first thing he wrote after he quit drugs, because it is in fucking insane. Like, it is crazy. It almost dares you to keep watching it at times. This whole, like, there's a, a, a mother and son couple, very literal couple, and we watch them slow dance and make out for really long, prolonged passages in the movie. <laughs> like, uh, and uh, we find out that they're these weird cat cat creatures that have all sorts of random powers that express themselves whenever they're needed in the plot and that they essentially need to feed on virgins. They suck the, the energy out of the virgin girls and that keeps them powerful and immortal and, you know, sexy cats. I think that, like, it was a great opportunity for McGarris to have the Stephen King, you know, script to do, you know, is getting a budget. But I may be guessing on some level he knew that the script was insane. And in order to sort of make up for that, he just started throwing cameos and references all over the place. Here. <laughs> so uh, can we get Mark Hamill for a day? The people will really like seeing him. There's a sequence where Stephen King himself walks from, I believe, Toby Hooper to Clive Barker to um joe dante in one shot i believe i think uh there's uh there's there's cameos all over the place there's references all over the place but it's all sort of a desperate dance to try to distract distract the audience from how completely crazy and sort of nonsensical that shit this this story really is so do i think the movie is good no no i don't Am I entertained by the movie? Yes. <laughs> yes, I am. Because, just just because of that. Just because of how fucking out there it is. Just because of all the weird faces you see in it. Because of it's desperate, even though it's failing, it's trying so hard to entertain you that it becomes strangely fascinating to watch. Again, not good. This is purely for genre people who want to look at a failing genre exercise and get a couple giggles out of it but this this might have achieved what iron sky kind of failed at trying to achieve the dreaded faint praise of being so bad it's kind of good (laughs) that's where i start on sleepwalkers but i'll be very okay with you disagreeing (laughs) with me on this i I could be alone here that's okay (laughs) I I um I kind of love Sleepwalkers to be honest, and uh, I I agree with you that it is so crazy and the script is insane and often nonsensical. But you know, you and I, Larry, we are big movie fans. We're big horror movie fans in particular, and when you just watch a lot of movies, it really counts for something to say. Well, I've never seen that before, no, and Sleepwalkers not. is packed with things that I've just never seen in a movie before. Um, yeah, unlike Iron Sky, it just jam-packs it with tons of crazy stuff. But I think, um, you know, Stephen King atmosphere uh, counts a lot for me. I really like a movie when it's, it's this intangible thing you can feel. Salem's Lot has it. Pet Cemetery, the original 1989 one, has it. 
the dark half has it. And this one does too. It's that small, it's that small town, uh, usually taking place in autumn kind of atmosphere that I really enjoy. I like the 1950s aspect of the movie and the 1950s music that flows throughout it. You know, anytime, and anytime you, uh, you put incest in a movie, I give the movie some credit for just going there. And this movie is not subtext. It's very overt. This Charles Brady is having sex with his mom yep. and uh, his very attractive mom, by the way, but still his mom. <laughs> and, uh, but at the same time, I find him and, uh, his love interest, Tanya Robinson, Robertson, I find them very charming together and their scenes are kind of cute. And you almost forget for a moment that he is an incestuous werecat. Uh, and you know somebody gets stabbed with a corn cob. <laughs> yeah, that happens. That actually <laughs> takes place in this movie. And like that's not credible. No, no, it isn't. But have you seen it before? No, you haven't. <laughs> no. No, and you you do have to give a movie credit for just being so constantly entertaining, which Sleepwalkers absolutely is. I think it's a blast. Um, this there's a horror trope that I hate because I'm such a dog person that horror movies always will kill the dog. <laughs> you oh, know, okay. I was traumatized many times when I was a kid. Like I could watch a you know a dozen stupid frat boys get their heads squished or some dumb chick running up the stairs instead of out the front door meeting a grizzly end. But you kill a dog, that would hurt my feelings. This movie seemed to like like sort of overcompensate to the other extreme. It's just like, no, we're gonna put some cats in some bear traps. We're gonna snap some cat spines. This is gonna this is gonna be revenge for all the cat carnage that wasn't in every other <laughs> cheesy genre movie. But do I think that that's what Stephen King was thinking when he wrote it? No, I don't know what he was thinking when he wrote it. I, I also think that that main character played by Brian Krause, Charles Brady is completely schizophrenic moment for moment. There's times where we seem to be like, does he really like this girl? Is he torn? No, because when the time comes to attack her, he wolfs out and is about as shitty about it as he could possibly be. He doesn't seem interested in making it like easy on her or gentle with her or, or you know, he likes he, he likes the chase. He likes to call shit. So like, there's scenes that sort of set up an emotional core in a character that, that then proves out to not exist. And it is definitely, I mean, and this is something that a lot of movies of this era is guilty of, the late 80s and early 90s especially, this high school is populated by 25 to 30 year olds. All of the kids look way too old to be going to high school. (laughs) Man, if you're going to watch horror movies, that's something you just got to get over. It's all over the place. Just accept it. That's how it's going to be. I get it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Hellboy shows up. (laughs) <laughs> in this movie. Yes, he does. <laughs> and, he, and that's, I don't even know if that's a cameo. Like, I think that's an actual role because he's in several scenes. Ron Perlman. Yeah, he gets his arm mm-hmm. very badly broken, if I remember correctly. Um, and that's what I, I think. Th- so. I think that Mick Garris is doing this dance. He's sort of like, okay, there is an A to B sort of monster movie happening here. That's going to keep people at least minimally interested. And the teen romance, I mean, that's traditional. I mean, I think going to a graveyard is like one of the least romantic places for a picnic, but maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. But yeah, in order to I bet Stephen King will be into it. In order to keep us watching it, it basically becomes yeah. Let's let's throw in these cameos here and there. And I've said it in the past, and I'm gonna have to say it here. I respect Stephen King so much as a writer of novels and of short stories. But having him as your screenwriter is not always a good thing. There is this character of this black cop who has his cat in the car with him. Who's like <laughs> Clovis. <laughs> Clovis. Like 
I think he's supposed to be lovable and like adorable and we're supposed to be like really upset when he dies but there's nothing credible about that character at all and like when he sees the weird shit and reports it to his you know superiors you believe that they don't believe him because that guy has no business being a cop and he spends all day talking to his cat and like it's I don't know what he was even going for and that's like page to page that's what I would talk about with the opening like he had his battles with with drugs and alcohol and uh, that kind of started messing with his work for a little while then he kind of cleaned himself up and then he got in that accident and sort of recovering from that accident Stephen King's writing again kind of went through a phase where it got even by King standards pretty weird and I can respect, you know, the the author using the, the ebbs and flows of his life to influence his work. But this is a complete aberration in his work. It's absurd. It's kind of funny, kind of deliberately, but mostly not deliberately. It has familiar themes that we've seen in his work, but in no kind of real cohesive, focused way. It's not exactly funny. It's not exactly scary. I don't know what we're looking at here, but... At the very least, it's not boring. <laughs> yeah, we all love Stephen King and we all respect him so much because he's written some of the greatest horror stories ever written. Like, I think Pet Cemetery is just a brilliant, frightening horror novel. But there's another side to Stephen King. Like, he likes to write really weird, crazy stuff. I mean, even there is just insane stuff in it. Um, and he wrote a crazy screenplay here. And in, in the movie's defense, I think Mick Garris, I think he knows exactly what this movie is. And I think he knew exactly what this movie needed. And he just made it really upbeat, fast-moving, entertaining, fun. And I, I do think a lot of the comedy works, so I do think it is a funny movie. I think it is a self-aware, over-the-top B-movie. Yeah. And in that respect... I really do think it succeeds. I like it a lot. Yeah, there's cringe comedy to it, too. The, the whole, you know teenage girl dancing in the lobby by herself and then the cute boy sees her the whole uncomfortable relationship the the jealous relationship that's very obvious between the mother and the girlfriend yep <laughs> it's almost curb your enthusiasm it's almost like you want to look away not because you're scared but because you're just uncomfortable <laughs> sure definitely incest should make you uncomfortable <laughs> yeah so I can't look away from the movie. Like I said, I'm, I said it at the top of the review. I don't know that it's a good movie, but I, <laughs> I have this weird affection for it just because it's just that crazy. Yeah, sometimes I'm with you there. Sometimes crazy is enough, I guess. <laughs> it's true. Good enough? Good enough. Jason's alive. We dug up his body. You gotta do something. <laughs> No one in Forest Green wants to be reminded of what that maniac did here. That's why we changed the name. People want to forget this was Crystal Lake. Just because our parents keep telling us that Jason was only a legend doesn't mean it wasn't true. What if he did come back? Looking for the camp counselor that caused him to drown his wife.
Darren, we better turn around. Why? Because I've seen enough horror movies to know any weirdo wearing a mask is never friendly. There it is. So, Daniel, how do you feel about the Friday the 13th franchise? I really love the Friday the 13th franchise. I'm a really big fan. Um, this was actually the first Friday the 13th movie I ever saw. It was actually one of the first um, 80s horror movies I saw because I really didn't grow up on 80s horror. My dad really brought me up on the old horror movie stuff, the kind of stuff that I do my podcast on now, like Universal Monsters, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, things like that. And then I would go see new horror movies in theaters, and that was kind of it. But this was one of my early introductions to 80s horror and I didn't know that there were horror movies that were violent, that were R-rated, that were technically for adults, but were still really silly and fun, almost like they're for teenagers. And that's what this movie really is, and the Friday the 13th series is as a whole. I am a big fan of the Friday the 13th series. I like how sort of sincere they are in that um, besides this one, this one's a little more in on the joke, but I think most Friday the 13th movies aren't. They're just trying to make as entertaining movies as they can without almost trying too hard. They're just like, here's some, some sex, here's some violence, here's some basically competent competent actors. And then somehow they, I think they got directors who were almost too good for them, like uh, like Joseph Zito and Steve Miner. I, I don't think um, uh, Sean Cunningham, I, Sean Cunningham directed the first one, I he think. Did, yeah. I don't think he's so much of a director, but after that with guys like Steve Miner, they just really did a lot with the material and they turned into just these really fun 80s slasher movies and yeah so i like these movies a lot yeah long well, story short <laughs> he's my favorite like of this you know the, the slasher you know juggernauts jason has always been hands down my favorite mm-hmm. and i think what part six of the franchise represents to me is a really you know well executed course correction the movie directly preceding this didn't even have an actual jason Voorhees in it it was a poser jason in that movie and the aesthetic of that previous movie was, even by Friday the 13th standards, pretty sleazy and pretty... Oh, yes, it is. You know, pretty, you know, honest, but at the same time kind of unpleasant. It lost the fun. And what Part 6 did to the franchise was bring the fun back in a big, big way. And, yeah, it also gets a lot of, you know talk about how it's it's a fairly funny movie it, it brings much more satire front and center it's not full-on scream i would say in scream the satire is up in the in the passenger seat in in, in part six of friday the 13th the the satire is still in the back seat but he's there and he's backseat driving <laughs> a little bit yeah <laughs> but it makes the movie fun it makes us tolerate this ridiculous premise this idea that tommy jarvis would dig up Jason's body and beat it up with a with a spike and stab it through the heart just to get his revenge back again and just not not see any possible negative repercussions to it. I mean, this, like all Friday the thirteenth movies, is kind of bluntly simple. Okay? Jason comes back from the grave and he kills a bunch of people who are not very smart. And I'm a big fan. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Yeah. I'm I, I mean it's not for everybody, I understand that. But, I mean, if you're not going to start at the very beginning of the Friday the 13th series, and you're looking for an alternate entry point, I would steer you to part six. Because I think even somebody who's not a true blue slasher movie fan can appreciate the level of fun 
that was brought to this movie. Yes, it's ridiculously violent, and yes, it has quite the body count. It's not as sexual as most of the Friday the 13th movies can be, but, like, it's fun. It's fun. And in that way, this, like, 1986 Friday the 13th movie might have got as close to nailing what I love about that series. So, you're not going to hear me talking any shit about this movie. Does it have weak acting and obvious scenes? Do we have jump scares and do we have, you know... Jason teleporting? Yep, yeah, we do. And the whole time, I've got a smile on my face and I'm eating my popcorn. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, what is a Friday the 13th movie without those things? <laughs> like, we, we go to different movies for different things. We go to the Friday the 13th movies for something specific, and we want it to deliver. Um, I do think this is a fantastic entry point into the series, maybe the best, because it's, it's just... Um, it, it is a very well-made movie, which most of them aren't so much. And it used to be my favorite of the Friday the 13th movies. It's not anymore, um, simply because I've come to really love the, like I said, the sincere dumbness of the earlier ones. Because this one knows a little bit more of what it is. And I'm not sure that, like, 2, 3, and 4 do quite as much. So those are probably my favorite ones. Um, I also tend to like the characters in some of the other ones better than in this one. But uh, I do really like the two lead at, the two lead characters, Tommy and the blonde girl, who's like a thirty-five-year-old teenager. I can't remember the actress's name, <laughs> but I do really like the two of them. Even though there's no reason for them to have romantic tension, they have it anyway, and it's cute. It's nice. It's nice to see that in a Friday Thirteenth movie. You're absolutely right that it is. It's one of the least sexual. In fact, it's this movie is almost like PG, and that's another reason it's fallen a bit down. My ranking list is because of the kills. This was when the MPAA was really cracking down on the Friday the 13th series. And the kills are... There's not a lot of blood. They're often cutting away from things, which is a little bit of a bummer when you go from, like, part two and part four, which which just have these glorious kill scenes. Um, but I do like it. It's really well-directed. It moves really fast. Friday the 13th movies tend to always drag at points, and this one no, I don't think does at all. And it's just a really, really fun movie, and I'm with you. I like it a lot. He got upgraded. He leveled up. When he got hit by that yeah. lightning bolt, all of a sudden Jason was, like, super powerful. And I, I really dig, like, how he kind of surprises himself a few times. Like, when he punches Horshack, his fist just goes right through him, and he's like, punches <laughs> his heart out of him. That sexist guy walking through the woods and he throws him away and tears his arm off and then he kind of looks at the arm like holy shit <laughs> like, I just did that and uh, there was something weirdly clownish about Jason <laughs> in this movie you're right that the MPA did take some good kills out of it apparently the triple decapitation was straight disturbing if you ever saw the actual real cut of it it happens so quick in the movie you barely understand what took place <laughs> unfortunately but I'll give it some points. Like, he twists off a girl's head like a cap, and that sheriff's back being bent, <laughs> like... That's a good one. That's a brutal kill. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's all sound effects and acting, but it's it's a brutal kill. Um, Tommy Jarvis, by resurrecting Jason, and, like, although he does try to fix it, he is 100% responsible for every death Jason commits from this point in the series on. <laughs> <laughs> And he is absent from the series from this point on. So, well, uh, yep. I guess we could talk about Jason Goes to Hell if we want to, but I don't know how long this podcast can possibly go on. 
I mean, I think it also references itself as like at the very beginning of the movie when we have that James Bond opening <laughs> where we cut into like the eyeball and the slashing is that Jason had really entered a new stratosphere here. Like this is the sixth entry in the Friday the 13th series and we ain't stopping yet. We still got a ways to go. And uh, I'm sure once they settle this ongoing lawsuit, there'll be more Friday the 13th in our future. I mean, it could outlive us all. <laughs> I hope so, man. I really do. <clears throat> it's just, it's strange that an entry that would be chapter six in a series would be of this high quality. And I think short of an Indiana Jones movie, that's how rare this sort of thing would be. And Indiana, or Indiana Jones, James Bond goes out of its way to try and up its game and give us the bigger spectacle each time. But this is Friday the 13th. And all it did is, is just like, you guys, what you love about Friday the 13th is that it's fun. So let's, let's have fun. Let's embrace that. And uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I also appreciate it that I saw it at that perfect sweet age when the like, horror movies were forbidden. And uh, I bought the vinyl soundtrack so I could listen to Alice Cooper sing He's Back, The Man Behind the Mask. And it, it does really hit my sweet spot of nostalgia. And I think like, maybe if you're watching it for the first time today, it's not going to have the same impact for you that it did for me. But I have such a soft spot for this movie. I recognize that there's some like some real cringy acting here. There's that scene where the <laughs> is it am I no yeah that's the same kid who's talking to all the uh, little kids in the camp about uh, <laughs> Native Americans, how to yeah. take care of this squaw and all of this stuff. And it's like I think at the time it was well intentioned, but it really hurts the ears now. And when that guy and his girlfriend get killed in the motorhome, which is a great sequence. The motorhome flips and there's all this smoke and steam and the, the the sun's backing him. Jason climbs out on top of that thing and stands there. It's a hero moment. It's like it's like this this like victorious hero climbing up top of his kill. And what has he done? He's just killed two innocent teenagers, you know? And we're on board for it. Who's next? But he killed, I think, like the douchiest one and just some <laughs> random girl we've never seen before in this scene. Yeah. Um, that is a really good scene. I like that it also has probably the least sexual sex scene I've ever seen where they're both fully clothed and just sort of bouncing up and down. And that's really it. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, I do like that it precedes Bride of Chucky as being a slasher that really is referencing uh, the Universal Monsters and the Frankenstein movies. Right. That's really fun. I think they've even got like a Karloff General Store that they walk by at one point. Yeah. This movie's really, really good at spooky atmosphere too. It's really good about having fog and 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 using lighting and things like that to really just give it a great look. And I do also like, as long as I'm just naming off all the things I like about this movie, that this is the first Friday the 13th movie that brings actual kids into the camp. And it's crazy that kids are there because there are practically no staff because I, I think Jason killed off some staff members before the movie started or something yeah. like that. Tony Goldwyn but and his it, girlfriend. it's fun to see kids interact with Jason. Yeah, Tony Goldwyn and his girlfriend didn't even make it to camp before they got killed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's nice celebrity spotting. Tony Goldwyn would go on to bigger, better things after this, but still, he'll always have Friday the 13th Part 6. That's right. And Kevin Bacon will always have Friday the 13th Part 1. Yeah. Um, and yeah, do they wink hard at times? Like when the grave digger says, looks directly in the camera and says, some people got a weird idea of entertainment. <laughs> 
Is he talking to us? Yes, he is. But is he judging us? No, I don't think he is. I think he's, he's laughing with us. He's in on the joke, right? This isn't funny games saying shame on you for liking Friday the 13th. This is a movie no. that says the people that made this movie loves Friday the 13th just as much as you do. I absolutely agree. Anything else you want to say about part six? Um, yeah, I think I, I basically hit on it that I think it's really well directed. It's really fun. I like those two lead characters. I do find it a little bit of a bummer that um, that the kills, the teeth are really taken out of them. And I, I think I do find Friday the 13th more charming when it's more, I don't know, like accidentally silly. And this one is just more overtly silly, but that's fine. Uh, I still really enjoy it. Just not quite as much as four or two, which yeah. would be my favorites. Oh, I get what you're saying about the previous ones because they're kind of doing, in a lot of ways, the same sort of stuff that's happening in Six, but they're doing it unselfconsciously. Like it's yeah. So in a way, it, it becomes almost funnier for it. I yeah, get it. I think that's kind of where my headspace is with this one, but it's a blast. It's a really good movie. Check it out if you haven't, kids. The boy murdered Silas, buried his body in the field, and dragged Molly from the house, hanging her in the farm's apple orchard. cardio I have to do. It's ridiculous. There's that whole thing of making it look like you're walking and everybody else is running their ass off. Everybody thinks we just wake up one morning and start obsessing about a girl and start stalking her, killing everybody that gets in the way. That does seem to happen a lot with you guys. That boy, he's going to be the best yet. There are 11 exits from the first floor. Another eight or nine that might be manageable from the second floor. <laughs> All the obvious weapons, I've sabotaged. Why are you doing this? We're not gonna have this conversation. Oh, why? Now. What, you Get in the van. Yes. You have no idea who you're dealing with. So how will this play out? How will this work? You won't like what you see. I promise you that. I'm so happy. Make sure you're getting this. Scott Glosserman is the writer and director of Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Um, it was kind of a secondary, second-tier hit. There was people who liked it. It made kind of a little bit of money, but not a lot. And he'd been trying for years to crowdfund to make a sequel, to sort of build on the sort of baseline that he set up with Behind the Mask. Sadly, it was never to be, and he never got to make his sequel, and he never got to grow this world. I don't know if it's too bad or not, because I never got to see those films, but I think that there's enough imagination in this film and enough of a fresh approach on a familiar subject that I would have liked to see where Glosserman was going to take it, where it was going. As a sort of set-up origin story of a self-made serial killer who lives in a world where every slasher movie you've ever seen is a true story. 
Michael Myers exists in this world. Jason Voorhees exists in this world. Chucky exists in this world. Every now and then, some person gets possessed of some supernatural power. It goes on a killing spree, and it's understood. And Leslie Vernon wants in. He wants to be the next one of these. He has a mentor that he helps to teach him everything he knows, played by Scott Wilson. A lot of people know from The Walking Dead, but he's been a character actor forever and ever and ever. Pops up in all sorts of things. And uh, this documentary crew, led by Angela Gothels, G-O-E-T-H-A-L-S, I don't know how to say that last name, is going to follow him around uh, in the days leading up to this full moon, where he will sort of completely transform into this character and take his place as another of the great slasher killers. I know a lot of people just reject it on the premise because it is kind of a ridiculous pill to swallow. It is, on its face, very ludicrous. But if you're a fan of the genre, they have a lot of familiar ingredients here. We got Robert Englund playing a heroic role. Um, we had uh, Zelda Rubenstein from the, the Poltergeist movies, who has a small bit part in here. It's very horror literate. It's funny without being overtly wacky. It's not like an airplane spoof type of approach. In spite of the ludicrous setup, it asks you to take it seriously. And I think if you do, you can have fun with this movie. But if you fight it, as the truth with most movies, you'll likely win. Where did you land on? <laughs> Dude, man, this is the this is maybe the toughest one for me to talk about because it is a movie that I definitely have respect for. Right. Um, I understand uh, that it is clever. I understand that it's taking a fresh approach to the slasher idea, and I still don't. I just don't like it very much. And I'm tr and I honestly like I've been thinking about it and trying to figure out why. What is what is wrong with this movie? And I think ultimately, I would just rather watch, and it's sort of what I said at the beginning about my thoughts on Wink Wink, I would just rather watch an actual slasher movie as opposed to a movie just talking about slasher movies. But by the same token, I think this movie is much more interesting when it is talking about slasher movies rather than the third act when it actually becomes one. And, and maybe that says something about how the two things aren't going together quite well. Like, can you make what is sort of a dressed up documentary to talk about a horror genre and then turn it into a movie in the last third when it's a little bit difficult to care because it's almost like we haven't been following characters. We've been following talking heads that are just discussing film. I'm not sure. Um, I'm also just not crazy about the idea that we're going to take these classic films like Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween and such and just pretend that, they're just guys who are using Houdini tricks to to make it seem like they're supernatural. Um, I, I noticed you said something in, in, in what you were talking about that that this takes place in a world where sometime, every once in a while someone gets possessed by a supernatural power to to do these slasher killings. But I never got that sense. I think there really are just people who want to make it seem like they're supernatural, right. so they have all these methods. Well, I think what's implied, and I'm just kind of jumping right to the end, when, when Leslie okay. Vernon is resurrected in the morgue, his body sits up in the morgue, by, by creating the scenario and killing those kids and finding his final girl and fi final girl taking his power and killing him, that, that's what joined him into the ranks. So, yeah, oh. I may have misspoke. He's not, there's nothing supernatural about Leslie Vernon throughout this film, but 
as he wakes up in that morgue, when he would go on to pursue his next adventure, he's obviously become the legend that he set out to create. But what's interesting about the movie is that the legend is full of, like, he tried to imply that he was this kid that went missing on that that acreage or whatever it was, or the, the apple orchard. But we find out that's not the case. And the, the, the morality of this camera crew that's going to follow this guy on, on this mission to kill teenagers is not really properly addressed. There's this, like... Uh, old film Man Bites Dog that does something similar with a camera crew that's following the spree killer but not doing anything to stop him. You know, the right thing to do at this point is to call the police. He may be fascinating, but what you're doing is supporting murder. And the movie, I was unsure of how to take it because of that approach. But then this reversal happens. The woman that he's been telling them is his, you know, final girl, the girl that's supposed to create him, is not the woman that he's actually targeting. The woman he's actually targeting is the woman who's doing this documentary. And that switch, that changeover, that break, when the movie goes, when her documentary stops and the slasher movie begins, we have this kind of great... The table's been completely set for us. It's a weird pull, but it goes to sort of like Jackie Brown. He walks them through. This is, this is the plan that we're going to do. This is all the steps I've taken. These are the people I'm going to target. This is how I'm going to target it. This is where I'm going to target them. And we, we walk through the rehearsal process. And then we get to opening night and everything's taken off the table. But we realize that he's still in control. So now we have to go through all of these events and we don't know where he's going to pop up anymore. Uh, he's changed the rules on us in order to accommodate, in order to create this legendary status for himself. And all of a sudden, uh, the movie from, went from being what I thought was close to being smugly smart to being legitimately smart. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, instead of just having Zelda Rubenstein and Robert Englund just there to wave and say, hello, we've been in other better horror movies, their archetypes sort of serve true purposes to the story. Um, it's a first-time filmmaker, and it's a low-budget film, and you can sort of feel that at times, but it's the ambition of the movie that I have a lot of respect for. Yeah, and I will say the cameos are better than in sleepwalkers because they don't exist to be cameos like exactly. robert england and zelda rubenstein really work as the characters i really really like robert england in this movie as the obviously a parody of dr loomis but he's a really good dr loomis and i really like him a lot so there is a lot i like about this movie and, and overall like it is a movie i would recommend it's just not a movie that particularly, I guess, caters to my taste. Um, there are a lot of movies that are meta about slasher movies. Yeah. Uh, ever since Scream, they've been making quite a bit of them. And I think what my problem with them is quite a bit is they're not actually offering any sort of commentary. They're not necessarily really saying anything. They're just pointing tropes out to you. And I also get a little bit annoyed sometimes when people point out slasher tropes because they're so often they're mostly talking about the Friday the 13th series. And there are so many slasher movies that don't follow all these specific tropes that we just sort of ignore. But I, however, I do think the one moment in this movie where it is actually saying something, it is offering some interesting commentary, is when he discusses that the final girl's grand moment is when she grabs the phallic symbol weapon to steal his manhood. 
that is interesting. And I thought that was an interesting piece of commentary about the slasher genre that's not obvious and isn't the thing that everybody always says. Well, they're going to go back to this when we talk about the final girls next, too. It's, it's, I know, it's going to be like so much repeated things that we're going to say between the two, I think. But it is a theme of these slasher movies, that women take the power from the man and use his power to destroy him. And it's yeah. funny, because it's in a genre where uh, so many people will dismiss it as like, oh, they, they, they treat women so terribly, and like... Almost all the time, the smartest, strongest character in these movies are a woman. Almost mm-hmm. every time. So that's true. Uh, I, I and also like like they acknowledging it. He talks about all the cardio and all the running and all the physical weightlifting and stuff he has to do because not only does he have to chase these kids, but he has to make it look like he's not really trying to chase these kids. Like he factors that in. He, has to, he can't look like he's running his ass off. He has to still look spooky and mysterious in spite of the fact that he's got all this hustle. And the sort of this is well before Cabin in the Woods, but that whole thing about him nailing the window shut on the second floor the night before or booby-trapping all of the weapons and that's why the weapons don't work or counting on the stoners doing the wrong thing and playing into that hand. I mean, yes, I guess the sort of deconstruction of the horror genre can take the scares out of it but like i said the bait and switch when we find out that the target girl is no longer who he said the target girl was going to be that changed things that the metamorphosis of the angela gothel's character taylor uh when she finally levels up and fights back and sort of plays her part in it 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 almost sort of plays into this idea of the these mythical components all have to come into place you don't just need the guy who wants to be the killer. You, you need the final girl who, on some level, wants to stop him. Um, and uh, I really liked, uh, sorry, uh, Scott Wilson as the, the sort of mentor figure that he talks to who had his day in the 70s, you know. And he, you get the idea, like, he killed a handful of people. But nowadays, it's a whole different game. But even in his retirement, he's a really, really <laughs> disturbed person. Mm-hmm. And just the approach to it, because if they'd tipped their hand too much, if they'd looked us right in the eye the way Friday the 13th Part 6 would, I think the whole deck of cards, the whole house of cards would just fall. They don't quite show their hands, but they come as close as they possibly can to showing their hand to you without actually doing it so that I can still have fun with it. Like I said, as far as I'm concerned, if you can get past the premise, which some people just think is just too ridiculous to take seriously, you can have fun with it. It is a horror movie made by a horror movie fan for horror movie fans. I get like someone who's just casual into it might just dismiss it, but I think that a lot of people miss this movie, and I'd encourage them to give it another shot. Sure, and I I would encourage people too, especially if you're particularly into meta-horror movies, this is probably one of the better ones. Uh, just to point out a few other things I like, uh, Nathan Bessel, I want to say, the as lead. playing Leslie Vernon. He is fantastic. Yep. It's a very good performance. He reminds me a lot of Jim Carrey. I don't know if I was the only person that thought that, mm. but I feel like he looks and acts a little bit like him. But he's very, very good. I think the actual design of the Leslie Vernon slasher, which is very important to slasher movies, is very creepy. Yeah, And I really like that a lot. So... It is clever. It is well made. It's almost a movie where, like, if you love it, I think you're right, and I think I'm the one that's wrong. For some reason, I just never really connect to it, and it never really means much to me. But I think it's well made, and I think it's certainly worth checking out. I'm not going to fight you. 
Guys, somebody's coming. Hey, do you guys know the way to Camp Bluefinch? Tina. So we're in the movie. Hey. Oh, hi. What's your name? Help me get some strawberries? Nope, but I'll give you a hand with those melons. Talking about her boobs. Ew, writing is so bad. What is that noise? It's Billy. He's coming. Everyone who has sex in this movie dies. It's awesome. No sex. <laughs> Run! Wait, wait, wait. Selfie time. Okay. Two. How do we get out of here? The movies like this end when the final girl kills the bad guy and the credits roll. That's Paula. That's the final girl. We just have to stay with her till the end of the movie. Oops. I want to know where they keep the hardware. I want chainsaws and big ass knives, and I want them now. Um, guys, what's happening? Why am I colorblind? Am I having a stroke? We're in a flashback. I wonder if all this blood is just corn syrup, you know? Like these characters are walking around with just corn syrup in their veins. Oh, no. Oh, God, that's blood. I know in the movie you're supposed to die, but that doesn't mean you have to, right? What do we do now? We fight. So, The Final Girls, uh, directed by Todd Strauss-Gulson from 2015 is another one of these deconstructionalist meta horror comedies where a group of teenagers get sucked into this classic slasher movie through a contrived uh, fire that takes place in in the theater and they have to learn how to play by the rules of the psycho movie in order to survive it and try and figure out their way back home and some of them know more about the horror genre than others but the fans of this movie uh will know all of the cliches that they're talking about when they goof off with the black and white flashback or the slow motion. There's lots of stuff here that they play with, I think, quite successfully. I think there's two things working against this movie for me, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be pretty positive about it overall. But the two things that work against it is, one, I think it wants to be R-rated. I think that locking itself in the PG aesthetic hurt it a little bit, because the actual movie they'd be watching would be quite red and have the prosthetic effects and bring the proper gore. I think they push the violence as much as they can in this PG realm, but it's still clearly PG realm, and that hurt it. And it also, coming out in 2015, seems at least 10 years late. This is another one of these deconstructionalist, like, scream meta-horror movies that kind of had their, their run, like... I don't know what more need to be said after Cabin in the Woods, really. And, like, the, it's getting to the point where the, 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 the pendulum is swinging to the other extreme. And we're getting into these really seriously dark horror movies again. And we're not looking... We don't want to see the man behind the curtain. We want to be scared, right? Um, so I think the timing might have been an issue for the final girls. Because I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. In the end of the day, I think it's a really well-acted, really funny very decent satire of the horror genre and I don't know why it fell through the cracks but it somehow fell through the cracks I think it's funny enough and that it's it's a safe enough movie that even people who are casual fans of the horror genre can get behind it 
But like I said, if it had allowed itself to be full bore, if it had like said, let's go full hard R, let's keep the commentary going, but much like Scream, keep people satisfied, not just with the humor, but with the horror, that instead of just being really good, it could have been something special. So I really liked the movie while thinking, oh, with just a little bit more of a push, it could have been so much more. So... Thumbs up for Final Girls, but I'm happy to hear a second opinion once again. Okay, cool. So, like I uh, stated before, Behind the Mask is a movie that I don't like that much, perhaps despite my better judgment. And The Final Girls is a movie that I actually do like quite a bit, also perhaps despite my final my better judgment, because I think this movie has a lot of problems. Uh, namely, it feels like a commentary on slasher movies from someone who maybe hasn't seen very many slasher movies. And I don't want to put that on the writer and director because I don't know them for sure. But it, it's very odd in that it doesn't, first of all, just on, on an aesthetic level, it doesn't look like a slasher movie. It's very, very bright and vibrant, and it doesn't look anything like an 80s slasher movie would. Uh, the characters very much feel like what you would think slasher movie characters are, perhaps if you haven't seen very many of them, they're very much very broadly drawn, silly uh, characters of dumb, horny teens. And by the way, I'm not sure if we've actually said the basic premise of this movie, which maybe is important. It's where a group of teens get sucked into the leading girls. Uh, in, they get sucked into an 80s horror movie, and it happens to be the 80s horror movie called Camp Bloodbath that the leading girl's mom starred in back in the 80s, who is her late mom. She has since passed away. So it does end up being sort of an emotional chance for her to see her mom again. Um, I really do like the actual teenagers in this movie, the real ones. It's the, uh, the movie ones that are just very silly caricatures, but by the same token... They're actually kind of funny. Adam and Devine, I enjoy watching them. They make me laugh. Adam Devine cracked me up in this movie. He was <laughs> like this super horny guy that no matter what the conversation was, what it was really about was we should probably go somewhere and fuck. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, yes, he does. And the really horny girl who just cannot keep from taking her clothes off. Yeah, yeah. She's very funny too. So it, it's a movie that I find very, very entertaining. It's almost like I've got this pretentious horror nerd thing in my head that says like well this doesn't feel like a friday the 13th movie and true it doesn't really it doesn't feel accurate but at the end of the day who really cares i don't need to be pretentious like that um this is a very fun movie and i really do like the uh i actually genuinely like the real characters the movie characters are silly and ridiculous but they actually make me laugh and the emotional stuff between the leading girl and her mom work it works yeah. it's actually emotional well, and the difference between the real characters and the movie characters is that the real characters are fully flesh characters and the movie characters yeah. are just movie characters. I think that's almost justified in the premise. I it just is. weirdly I've just recently watched a, doing a bunch of Woody Allen movies for a different episode. I watched this movie The Purple Rose of Cairo where one of the characters walks out of the screen in that movie to go out with a girl who keeps watching him in the movie. And all of the other actors on screen seem weirdly stranded, like, where are you going? we got other scenes we got to do. And that's sort of how I feel about these characters. They don't really have a, a full inner life. Mayan Ackerman's character gets to have more of a full life because somehow seeing her daughter awakens her to a, the, another reality that might exist outside the movie. 
But as far as these characters are concerned, they are they're just walking this eternal circle of this slasher movie until these kids show up and disrupt it. And, and uh, I think, yeah, you're right. The characterizations are really, you know, lovely by all of the actual real actors. Thomas Middleditch plays Duncan, who's the one guy who knows the most about the horror films. So necessarily, he, he's kind of the Gandalf figure. He has to go first because <laughs> yeah. if he's there, he's going to tell him where the killer is at any given moment because he's going to know that he's got this, the, the inside dope on him. Again, wow. just lovely moments when they all of a sudden switch to slow motion and they have a slow motion conversation about what's happening. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. And then like uh, this impressive, you know, full body burn chase sequence with an actual, you know, slow motion effect happening. When they get into a bad uh, spot, she tells her mom to start telling the story of the origin. So the movie will have to cut back to a flashback. They can't get killed during the flashback, right? Kind of some clever inside baseball. But again, it, this seems to belong in the late 90s, early aughts, more than, than 2015. I think they were late to the party. And again, if they could make fun of some of the kills by being a little bit over the top with the violence, even unrealistic, quote, with the violence, or the fact that he can be lured by nudity, maybe it would be appropriate to have a little bit of nudity, right? Yeah, they just show her lift her shirt up, but the camera's right under her face, oh, so right we can't see face, anything. Yeah. I agree, the PG-13 rating is a very strange decision, because it's not like it would be there to make more money. Mm-hmm. I mean, this movie got barely a theatrical release, so it's a really weird decision. I don't know. I think what what made me realize that the movie worked, like like front to back for me, was that it hit emotionally for me. We already said, like, the relationship between the mom and the daughter. When, you know, the mother understands she's not the final girl, or if she is, that means that her daughter isn't. She walks out to go meet her death, you know, to die. And they start playing Betty Davis' eyes, like was playing right before the car accident hit. And I was like, am I about to... Do I feel a little dust in my eye? Am I... (laughs) Am I seriously getting a little bit emotional watching this movie? The final girl's like, it wasn't a weeper. It wasn't like old yeller or anything like that. I didn't cry necessarily, but I felt like that little like, oh my God, where the shit is this coming from? And if, if a movie this dumb can hit an emotional chord that well, I can't dismiss it. I can't dismiss it. Could it have been better? Maybe. But I mean, I'm happy with this final product, you know? Um, and again, much like Behind the Mask, I feel like people missed it. And I feel like, please, <laughs> check out The Final Girls. There's a lot of really fun stuff in it. I think that the the Final Girl is introduced in the context of the movie. The chick with the spiky hair and the leather outfit, chain smoking. There's just something flatly hilarious and perfect about her, <laughs> right? Uh, that... But- but she doesn't seem anything like any final girl you've ever seen, right? She seems what... very 80s, though, right? Okay, but she didn't seem at all like a final girl. That's what I found so puzzling about that. It's really weird. She seemed like she could have been that movie's final girl until, you know, she's abruptly exploded. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yes, she is. And there are uh, surprising moments me. in it. Uh, characters who's like the bitchy character throughout the movie is trying to win back the boyfriend. He's kind of an enemy character. Instead of having a death where we're like, ha ha, that's what you get. 
she kind of redeems herself, so it counts yeah. more when she leaves the movie. You know, <laughs> the the hilarious romance that this uh, the, this one freckly girl has with one of the fake movie characters, even though she yeah. realizes that the guy isn't a real person, she still can't help but give him that last kiss. You know, <laughs> and just that moment makes it count more for those characters. All of a sudden, we like them. So all of a sudden, when they get wiped off the board, you know. Damn, dude, you're just making me like this movie more and more as we as we talk on. <laughs> um, just a few other things I want to hit on that I do like in this movie yep. is I I think I think a couple of reasons why I like it better than a lot of other meta slashers is one the meta commentary I think goes further than they usually do and that I feel like so often it stops at oh if you have sex you die you know which is kind of boring commentary but this movie goes a lot further with things that like yeah if there's a slow motion scene they're in slow motion. Uh, if there's text that appears on the screen, then like that text is actually physical there. and they can interact with it and mm-hmm. things like that. That's fun. Um, I also usually don't find meta horror movies scary. And sometimes they're trying to be scary. Like I think there are times that Leslie Vernon is trying to be scary. Yeah. And this movie is 100% not. This is a comedy. Yeah. It's an, an emotional comedy at times. The drama works, but this is not trying to be scary at all. So it doesn't fail at that, which is good. Um, and then also, uh, I watched this movie with my wife who is not a horror movie fan and she really enjoyed it. So that was fun. It was fun to watch it together. Well, it has that girl power thing. Like we say, men, women, and chainsaws, that whole, whole idea of horror movies are more feminist than a lot of people think. Obviously there's terribly exploitive horror movies as well, but this genre gets gets unfairly derided for being, you know, shitty to women. Even that caricature that we have in this movie of the woman who's completely uh, driven, motivated by her sexuality and her beauty, she's not a complete person because she's a character in the movie. And in spite of that, we kind of were charmed by her. She, there's, a, there's an inherent innocence, if that's the right <laughs> word, to her because she just can't help but be what she is. You know? That's true. And there's a male character that's exactly the same. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. just the, the, the idea the movie's talking about, teenagers are not stupid. The teenagers in the real world that enter this world, they make smart decisions. The movie teenagers do not make smart decisions. They're like viabilities to the plan. They just, <laughs> <laughs> they, they're useless. So, yep, they are. It's fun and funny. Like, again, I think that that's the one thing, like I said, if they'd managed to land with the scares as well, on top of everything else that they did so well, then it might have, you know, hit scream territory. It's not scream, but it, it knocks on the door. And so anybody who missed the final girls, I invite you to take a look. Yeah, I do too. I really, really enjoy the final girls. It's a fun movie. Even though I think I think when it comes down to it, my biggest issue, it, it's so superficial maybe it's the way it looks it's just shot nothing like an 80s horror movie it's like too bright it's too clean it's too slick and i just feel like if they just tweak the cinematography and just like really watched 80s horror movies and made it look more like that i think i would like it better but i realize that's superficial so Mm. when my big complaints are that small you know i like the movie the heart's so in the right place here you guys (laughs) like it's all it wants is to make you smile and i think like it likes the same movies you do so, yeah, I'm, I'm on board.
Okay, Mr. Daniel Epler, thank you so much for doing the podcast. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, it's really nice <laughs> I, to meet you, too. I think that we in have person. fairly similar sort of. tastes, as it turns out, in, in these movies. So uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled you decided to be here. I would love to know, what was your least favorite of these six wink-wink horror genre comedy movies? What, what was oh. the bottom and why? My number six. Uh, oh, it's a big it's a big hot take here. It's really going to shock people. Uh, it's a little nazi space movie called iron sky uh yeah this movie i just found it impossible to invest it in it's never so terrible that i was offended by it it's just flat and that's one of the worst things you can be for a horror movie i think because even if you're hilariously terrible for the horror genre maybe not for a an emotional drama for the horror genre that's something and iron sky just doesn't have much of anything for me and even all the characters are just complete stereotypes and i just can't care about them so that's just a darn shame i don't think i'm going to be checking out parts uh two and three anytime soon (laughs) not high on your list yeah so my number five i think is going to upset people but gotta do it my number five is behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon which i think kind of speaks to the overall decent quality of this list in that this is a pretty good movie i just don't particularly like it all that much it doesn't really speak to my taste um, but it is well made. I do think the lead performance is great. It just, I'm not sure how well I can reconcile the fact that it's almost just a talking head documentary about horror that becomes a horror movie in the end. And I don't know, it doesn't quite work for me. But it's a, it's a, it's a fine movie. Uh, my number four is Ghostbusters, which is a movie that I mostly like. I think it has its downsides. I agree with you, the fan service is mostly bad, uh, with the exception of Slimer, actually kind of like Slimer in this movie. Um, And I think a lot of the plot is okay. Um, It's way too heavy on just CGI noise in the third act, which it's certainly not alone in. That's a lot of movies these days. But I really like the cast. I genuinely like and care about the characters in this movie. I think it has a lot of jokes that are really, really funny. Um, And it's it's just kind of a blast. And I wouldn't put it terribly far below the original even though the original i think is absolutely a much superior movie ghostbusters 2016 is fun and if you kept away from it because of the controversy i truly and i don't want to upset people here but i truly do believe a lot of that is fueled by sexism and not fueled by the quality of the actual movie it's a fine film uh my number three is the final girls which is a movie that i think i like more now than i did coming to this podcast i, <laughs> I talked you into it <laughs> i think your speech i was like yeah man like, the final girl is fucking great. I really like it. Um, yeah, it, the emotion of it genuinely works. I really like the characters. The acting is all around totally solid. All the acting by the real characters is totally believable. The acting by the fake characters is very funny, and I really enjoy it. Boy, Adam Devine, he's a hes a weird guy. I, I, I don't know if I can say I like him, but I always enjoy it when he pops up in anything. Well, he, um, he was in the movie just enough. I'll say that. Like, I think that if his character had been given, like, too much more screen time, he might have worn out his welcome. But I liked him while he was there. So. <laughs> I did, too. I did, too. He's fun. Um, yeah, so the emotion is genuinely good. I think the slasher works well enough. I think he looks creepy. I appreciate that the movie is never trying to be scary because I don't think it was ever going to succeed at that. It's funny. It's a fun, funny comedy. And I would say especially, like I did... If you want to watch a horror movie with your significant other who isn't so much into this stuff, it's probably a good option. It's, yeah. a, it's a good, harmless movie. My number two is Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. Really? Which is, yeah, yeah, which is a movie that I really like. Um, 
I just don't like it quite as much as a lot of other Friday the 13th movies, so it's not going to quite be a go-to for me, but it was a really good entry point into this series, and I would definitely say if you haven't seen any of these movies, this is a good one to start with, because it's genuinely well-made, it's well-directed, it's never boring, the characters are fun enough, it just doesn't have that early 80s sort of innocent grime to it that the, late, that the earlier ones have that I think is really fun and just just the more blood and and I also I'm a little bit weird with Friday the 13th series and that I know a lot of people say the opposite of this but I tend to like the characters in these movies like I genuinely like the characters in parts one two uh four for sure and, and with this movie I like the two leads well enough, but not as much as those earlier ones. So it's a fun movie. I enjoy it a lot. And I really enjoy all the universal monsters, uh, throwbacks. Cause I'm a big, I'm a big nerd for those movies. Hey, that's cool. My number one is the only movie on here that I might be able to say I love. And that's Mick Garris's sleepwalkers, wow. which is just so much fun. I just can't <laughs> deny what a blast I have when I watch this movie. Um, I think Miss Mick Garris, crushed it he took an insane script and i think he did a lot with it um i think the effects are genuinely good it's got some just crazy looking cat monsters in it and it's got corn going through people's flesh and who doesn't like that uh i gotta give it respect for the incestuous angle because movies usually don't go there <laughs> this movie goes there um all the actors are great i think um and i think it's a movie that is not i don't think what it is is accidental i don't think it's like I don't think it's a so bad it's good because I think the movie knows exactly what it is. It's a fun, silly, crazy B-movie. And I think it succeeds more than most movies do in that respect. So I can't deny can't deny my heart. Sleepwalkers is my favorite of these movies. Uh, but this was a pretty good list. I'm genuinely surprised with your number one, I have to say. I mean, like, <laughs> for me, like, Sleepwalkers is 100% like a guilty pleasure, almost like in the so bad it's good category. So, no, I'm afraid we do not go six for six or zero for six. But I, I don't think we're gonna we're gonna you know part enemies here or anything like that. <laughs> I think we're largely on the same page. But uh, yeah, you're not gonna like how low Sleepwalkers is on my list. But let's let's okay. let's start out in agreement. Comfortably, okay. easily, the worst of these six movies, Iron Sky. It's just amazing how I felt nothing as I watched it. I didn't feel offended by anything that I should be offended by. I didn't feel laughter. I didn't feel shock. I didn't... It's just amazing how it, like... It wasn't even like that I strongly disliked it. I felt nothing <laughs> watching it. And uh, that's yep. almost a harder thing to accomplish, considering all the stuff that was going on, that I felt nothing. It's just... It's kind of amazing, <laughs> but it's still not worth being uh, anywhere but the bottom of the list. Then in fifth place, I put Sleepwalkers. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's okay. Sorry, dude. I mean, I, I defended McGarris, maybe a little bit red-faced. Not all of his movies have been great, but like uh, I, I do think he contributes to the horror genre, and I kind of like... I, I, I have respect for the man. But this movie's bonkers. It's completely insane. And, like, to the good and bad of that, I think on the right day, you can have a lot of fun with it. On the wrong day, you'll stand there with your mouth hanging open going, what am I watching? <laughs> so, just buyer beware. Um, in fourth place, the controversial, I guess, Ghostbusters. <laughs> I don't know why it was so controversial. In the end, it's just an okay movie with some decent special effects and some good acting in it. But like, it's better than Ghostbusters 2, but far, 
far inferior to Ghostbusters, and everybody can just relax about this movie. It's fine. It's okay. It's like, it will not have a legacy, not because, you know, it was so bad or not because it was so good, but just because it's going to come and go, and that's kind of what it's earned, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, in third place, I'm giving it to Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, more for what it wants to be, maybe, than for what it ended up, you know, achieving. But I, I just love these. A bunch of people who loved horror movies a lot made this movie, and uh, it had some ideas. It had some. It had a personality. It had a take on the genre. It was, you know, not just another slasher movie, and it didn't set out to be just another slasher movie. And I really do wish I could see what these guys could do with a proper budget um, behind them. Uh, so um, I got a soft spot. Uh, speaking as an independent filmmaker myself, like. I would have been, uh, you know, high fives all around. I'd love to buy a beer for anybody involved in the production of Behind the Mask. Yeah. In second place, I'm going to go for my nostalgia pick, Friday the 13th, Part 6. <laughs> oh, I'm so surprised. Okay. <laughs> I do love me that movie. It ranked high in the franchise. And, like, uh, I like to review them outside of the franchise episodes as well to see how they sort of stand alone. And a lot of the Friday the 13th movies don't stand that well by themselves. They're just good at being Friday the 13th movies. Because I think you could bring an outsider to this Friday the 13th chapter and have them walk away smiling is why I think it's particularly interesting. And it doesn't have quite as hard an edge as some of the other ones, too. It's fun. For a slasher movie with a body count in the double digits, it's got a lot of fun to it. At number one, perhaps overperforming, I want to give a lot of points to the Final Girls. Again, I, I said it in the review, I kind of wish they'd gone with the R rating and uh, maybe explored with the killer to a point where we could have some sort of intimidation factor, but it, it mostly works, and I'm just kind of bummed that so few people watched the movie. <laughs> like, I do think you're right, it's a really good date movie. Like, you could probably talk somebody who's not into the horror movie into this one it's like yeah it's set in a horror movie but it's not a horror movie it's much more of a comedy it's much more of a date movie but there's just a lot of charm to the movie a lot of ambition to it and uh here today i'm giving it number one nice i'm so surprised i thought for sure friday six was getting that number one <laughs> well and in the way they're 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 related in a lot of ways like these two movies i mean I don't know if Friday the 13th Part 6 is commenting on itself as much as it's just trying to have fun. But, like, The Final Girls is definitely a comment on the Friday the 13th type of movie. So they do yeah. hold hands. And um, of the list, the closest thing to debating would be those two. I'm sorry that Sleepwalkers fell so low. That's a guilty pleasure. There's some movies we love that we just can't imagine anyone not loving, like Jaws or something. And there are some movies we love where I'm like, no one else is gonna like this movie, and that's okay. I'll just, I'll just hold this on my own, yeah. you know. <laughs> I'm all alone. Yeah, it's sort of when I did the the best of the '90s, I put like Tremors in second or third place. <laughs> my favorite horror movies of the '90s, and people oh, are like, "Are you serious?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm dead fucking serious. I love <laughs> Tremors, and I have no problem saying it." <laughs> oh, you should. No, Tremors is super well made. I think. 
Thank you so much. Once again, uh, what's the name of the web, or sorry, the podcast? And... Yeah, it's called Cobwebs, a gothic cinema podcast. You can check us out on my website, uh, cobwebspodcast.com. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram at cobwebspod. Uh, yeah, we just love to cover and talk about old classic horror movies. So if you love those movies or you just want some recommendations, you know, yeah. come check us out. We just did an episode of a couple of Hammer Dracula movies with uh youtubers from serial at midnight so it was really really fun that's awesome man well if you're ever really hard up for guests uh let me know <laughs> i, I okay. feel like a reciprocity uh you know you did my show i could happily return the favor and uh Sounds good. open door invite if uh, we can find another list for you i'd love to have you back cool i would I, love to be back this is really fun and i love this show <laughs> thanks so much man uh please keep spreading the word for rank and review absolutely episode 158 of Ranking Review. Big thanks to my guest Daniel Epler, and I hope you guys all check out Cobwebs, the gothic cinema podcast, as I intend to do so myself. Please send me feedback at rankingreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Check out the website at rankingreview.ca. And thank you guys so much for listening. If you can do anything you can to help spread the word on Rank and Review in your particular corner of the world, you'd be doing me a favor. Much love from your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons. And I hope to see you for episode 159.